that's a good idea for a movie, a successive series of buglers who just keep sort of getting yeah. popped, you know, getting popped in yeah. this, in this one unit. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, but it's a bugle. Yeah, <laughs> it gets passed around all the different bands. Yeah, exactly. You just follow the life of the bugle. That's mm-hmm. fucking genius. Man, I could see the poster in my head. The cursed bugle. It's got like a little, you know, blood on the on the brass. Yeah, it's like uh Fort Apache meets a, a Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Yeah, yeah. It's like Fort Apache meets the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm joined here today with... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us proposes a theme, and then the other two hosts select films in response to that theme. And then we sort of run the gauntlet with the two films uh, after they've been smashed together. And boy, do we have a unique pairing this week with two, I would say, radically different films that shed a lot of light on each other and just filmmaking in general, grappling with big moral questions and big notable historical figures with these two radically different approaches. So yeah, this week, the topic that I picked was sympathy for the devil. And I challenged the boys to bring me humanistic portrayals of a historical figure, or at least at the very least a real person. But here we do have two quite notable historical figures that um, have been presented to us this week on the gauntlet, both complicated men, at least according to the films, and I mean, I would agree, of course, too, um, who had, some might say noble ends, but some terrible means to achieve those ends, but we'll, I think we'll chew on that uh, a bit more as we go on. So, Marsh, what, what did you bring to the table? You know, I was thinking about all the possible potential topics for this kind of thing, but really what stuck with me was I was thinking about the, uh, the monster's of the Midway, and I don't mean the Chicago Bears, I mean Chicago area sort of legends and scary myths, right? And in my childhood growing up, the two, of course, most notable ones are John Wayne Gacy and the Unabomber. So I picked the 2012 film Stemple Pass by James Benning, who coincidentally or not, is also a Midwest native like Ted Kaczynski. James Benning, of course, is an experimental film legend who's been making films since the uh, 1960s and 70s, mostly sort of durational or structural uh, that deal with length and also sort of themes of landscapes and the environment and other explorations of Americana in his very unique sort of one-man band style of filmmaking. And so this film is four shots, all with a reconstructed 
cabin modeled after the Unabombers, placed in this sort of, yeah, this landscape. And throughout these four shots, which are delineated by the seasons, although not in order. So you get the four seasons, four shots, and in each of the sections, Benning himself reads from the diaries of Ted Kaczynski, as well as from other related Kaczynski documents, including previously secret journals that James Benning himself decoded and read in this film. So yeah, it's a it's an image text sort of mashup where you're sort of just looking at these long shots of of this landscape sort of evoking Lincoln, Montana and the whole Unabomber thing while he reads from these journals. And uh, it makes for a haunting experience to uh, say the least. So yeah, in short, uh, that's Stemple Pass. And Andy, what did you bring to the table? Well, you know, when you presented the prompt to us, I immediately in my brain went to one of my sort of cinematic fancies that I have, which are HBO original movies and a particular period of HBO original movies, which is the sort of like late eighties through the nineties. And they had a lot of them in this time that were based on historical figures and often, you know, sort of troubled bad boy historical figures. And so the two that sort of popped into my head, both dealt with, notoriously complex, complicated figures from Russian history. And I uh, had thought about Rasputin, uh, starring Alan Rickman, which is a very great film. But then I leaned to the film that we have today, which is 1992's Stalin, starring Robert Duvall in the titular role, a film directed by Czech filmmaker Ivan Passer. Stalin is pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's, a, it's a biopic of the uh, notorious dictator, some would call him, of the Soviet Union. I don't really think I need to explain who <laughs> Joseph Stalin is, uh, but the film picks up at the sort of beginning of his uh, adoption of this persona of Stalin, because that was not actually his birth name. So the film opens in 1917 with the October Revolution, and we follow Stalin's career uh, as the, you know, first, at a certain point, the general secretary of the, the, the newly blossoming Soviet Union into his, you know, ascension to an almost godlike totalitarian figure of Russia, and the film follows him then to his death. It's a whew, an interesting film, and I think we're gonna have a lot of fun talking about it. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a guilty pleasure of mine. Yeah, absolutely. I it was really fun watching these films side by side because with one you have Stemple Pass, which is obviously extremely minimalist and not necessarily decorated so much of the film is reliant upon the nature at the time when Benning was actually there filming the cabin. You know, we never see the inside of the cabin. We just see, and uh, our view of the cabin is slightly obstructed by just the trees that are surrounding it. Um, And then conversely in Stalin, 
you've got all the tools available to a big budget, you know, television film production about a notable historical figure. You've got Robert Duvall like completely caked in makeup. Oh, yeah. I mean, his whole his whole body is covered to the point where he kind of looks like a wax figure of an animated wax figure of Stalin wandering around. And then of course there's a sweeping score. They had access to so many places. And the interesting thing about that because yeah, the locations you're talking talking about. I mean, mm-hmm. this film also has, uh, it's almost a sort of historical document as well, because they were filming like in Kremlin buildings during the dissolution of the Soviet Union in like 1991 and 92. I mean, they were there like filming this as the Soviet Union was falling apart, like in those spaces. So yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, I feel like that was one of the things that most fascinated me by it was that it is all these Americans, or a lot of them are Americans. It's There's a, quite a few people in the, the, in the cast. Actors. Yeah, but still all these, you know, I guess you could say then like, yeah, Western performers who are doing Russian accents, but in all of the real locations, recreating a very specific version of history. It did sort of feel like a dubbed version almost, you know, just because of that sort of, yeah, like cultural sort of tension at the core of... Uh, all these guys doing, you know, to varying degrees of success, their Russian accents, but in the real locations. And one thing I found interesting, and I think this is, again, you know, speaks to both the, you know, like, it's amazing that they, yeah, that they, like, got in there as all that chaos is going on and they're shooting. But one thing that struck me about the film is that there are no crowds in the movie. And so it's sort of like the limitations of TV you feel, because when I think of Soviet cinema and specifically Bolshevik cinema, I think of the masses, the crowds, but they can't afford to have all these people, let alone they're filming overseas in like a runaway production, you know, kind of thing. So I mean, the most people we see on screen are when we are just treated to footage from Eisenstein's right. October. Yes. <laughs> there's there's uh, there's a few crowd scenes often at like train stations. Yeah. Yes. But but yeah, the the big huge But yeah, this sweeping... idea of like yeah, any kind of, you know, masses uh, is conspicuously absent while at the same time the film is in Lenin's apartment for real and other real locations. So I, yeah, I do think there's something, yeah, very fascinating historically about this film and also this film almost representing in a perverse way the fall of the Soviet Union itself. Absolutely. Because you know? yeah. it is a bit of a celebration, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sort of in the world of cinema and global politics is sort of weird bit of cosmic irony uh, that this film is made at this particular time in this particular place in these particular spaces with these particular people i mean robert duvall as stalin you know is such a weird choice and i think that's why it's always kind of fascinated me when it came up that's what i said to you guys was like you know, Robert Duvall played Stalin once. <laughs> I I just sent you guys like the picture of him and, and you both like freaked out. And it was like, yeah, all right, let's, we got to go with this it's one. It's a really shocking image the first time you see it, him and all that makeup. Oh, yeah. But, you know, to your point, Marsh, like I want to say, like, I, I think that's also, um, you know, and maybe I'm giving it too much credit, but I, I do think it's also slightly intentional in the yes. sense that this film isn't about the Russian people. Nope. It's about Stalin and and it's about him and how 
isolated I think he is. Yeah, I wrote down that he goes Howard Hughes mode uh, in the early <laughs> 30s. Because, again, it's all sort of cinematically what it feels like. He's retreated. He's watching films uh, at home with his daughter. You know, he's watching Charlie Chaplin movies. There's the sympathy for the, uh, for the you know, the devil that we love to see. Yeah. Look, this guy just loves Chaplin. You know, yeah, leave yeah. him alone. And Stop. he's, like, reaching out to his daughter for affection. You know, he keeps, like, patting her arm like, aren't we having fun? Isn't this a nice bonding moment for the two of us? But you're right. Of course, it's, it is an, in, it, I mean, it is an inside-out perspective, and it's an insider's perspective, right? We're treated to the halls of power, the elite of the Bolshevik the Communist Party, and we're in indoors. We're in these halls of power most of the time, or in his personal life, in which was increasingly isolated. Right, due to his paranoia, his, you know, seeing conspiracies in his soup, right, everywhere. <laughs> and <clears throat> I think the film does... On that level, it does a good job of that, of of showing his, like, isolation, in the sense that they try to humanize him, and I think, to an extent, try to make him somewhat, somewhat sympathetic. Uh, I think that sort of dissipates a bit through the film, and... Yeah, I think there is, like, kind of a steep drop-off, but they do take care in the first section of the film, too, and again, even to highlight his working his sort of like working man status next to the intellectuals right and it sort of sets up oh yeah right he's the son of a, a drunken cobbler he's just this guy this thug this gangster from georgia and i do think yeah it's it's both interesting to me and i find limiting that the film very clearly is this sort of american despite it is made by Eastern, Eastern Europeans, but it is this sort of like American kind of perspective in terms of individualism and how that affects things and just the personal being like, oh, everything in Stalin's life can sort of be explained by his relationship to his wife and his children and right, all these sort of melodramatic. Absolutely. And, and also, again, considering the time that this film comes out, like a sort of eulogy for the Soviet Union's experiment, right? Like, yes. and saying like, hey folks, this is why this shit fails, right? Like, look at, this is what happens with communism, you know, this is it. Look at, and look where we are now, you know, we're filming in these like decaying <laughs> icons of Soviet power and look at us, just throwing American money around, you know? Like, so yeah, I think there's, there's definitely that element there and it should be pointed out too though, it is directed by um, a Czech filmmaker, Ivan Passer, and shot by a Hungarian eye in Vilmos Sigmund. It was written by an American, and it was written by, I don't know if you, you saw the credit. Oh, yeah, baby. Paul Monash. That's right. Who is the you know creator of one of our favorite films, I think, on the podcast here, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. So, and I think also, like, if you think about The Friends of Eddie Coyle, it's kind of a similar sort of, like, sad sack story of betrayal and, you know, loneliness and depression also sort of embedded within there. I think that's where the sort of the human elements come through because there are, I, I'll say it, this is to me a very uneven experience, viewing experience. There are some, I think, very powerful moments, but there's also a lot of really kind of head scratching sort of, yeah, TV movie. Do, do you know if this was released as a miniseries? Uh, no, I think it was released as just a, a Folks, one. Folks, this movie's two hours and 52 minutes long. I mean, it's there's long. a really... <laughs> long fade to black right smack dab in the middle of it though. I, yeah, I mean I think you know probably even from HBO's perspective and a lot of TV movies 
there's the idea that, hey, this might not just be on like cable television at some point. This might be on network television and people might have to re-edit it or, or build those commercial breaks in. So maybe that has something to do with it as well. But mm-hmm. I only ever remember seeing it as like one complete film. But there's a, funny, there's a funny trailer for it that I found online that has like a 3D animated VHS tape spinning like next to Robert Duvall, like oh, freeze wow. frame, you know? So they were already prepping it for the home video market at the time too. So we, we touched on a lot of things that I want to go into a little bit deeper with it. One thing when, though, when we're talking about sympathy for the devil and it's like sort of humanizing of Stalin, it almost feels like there's a built-in failsafe by having the film be narrated by his daughter. So at the moments when he does seem at least most likable or understanding or relatable, we then get his daughter's voice coming in, sort of framing it as like, oh, I'm remembering my father, like my complicated father. And it does seem like a very American way of just cleaning it up a little bit. And and, I mean, I guess this is a question I have for both of you. If you feel that the film is trying to actively ignore some of Stalin's ideologies by just focusing on him as a leader and a figure and like his failings as a leader, because there isn't a ton of time, at least I didn't think so on my watch, that were dedicated to what he maybe was actually thinking about um, when he was putting policies in place. Yeah, I think the film tries to focus a lot more on the human failings and tries to give access to a notoriously like uh, inaccessible kind of figure, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you can't get I think any more, you know, kind of iconic and almost sort of godlike than uh, a Stalin. Maybe even more so than Hitler on a certain level. You know, Hitler's been given so many cinematic treatments and, you know, psychoanalyzed so many times, I think, in so many films. But, you know, from my mind, I can't think of a ton of movies about Stalin, right? For a figure who should be so ripe for so much, you know, that this film, I think, is one that really tries to go into the motivations behind who he is and and what he did and yeah, it doesn't necessarily dive into a lot of the ins and the outs. And to be honest, can be quite confusing for somebody who doesn't really know who a lot of these figures are. But mm-hmm. it, it just kind of then becomes almost like a like Marsh said, like a thug, almost like a gangster film. You know, it's kind of got a Godfather-esque quality where it's focusing on family and friends and betrayal and murder, you know? So there's a lot of yep. time devoted to that. And it should be pointed out that, again, in this idea of, like, sympathy for the devil, like, the film opens, like you're saying, with this narration by uh, his daughter. And you think, like, where do we open? You you open in this scene where it's it's the middle of World War One. And he's going to like a recruiting station or something like that to like join and fight for Russia, fight for Imperial Russia. And he's rejected and he's rejected by his physical deformities that are pointed out, you know. And so right away, he's kind of like told that he's this like cast off figure, this this useless person as far as like these generals are concerned, these aristocratic officers or whoever. So we started a moment of like rejection and weakness for him and particularly about things that he was very insecure about his, his physical deformities. And for those who don't know, Stalin had, 
you know, uh, one of his arms was was several inches shorter than the other, and they point out that he had webbed toes. And then one of the one of the officers even says, like, the mark of the devil. Yeah. Which again, for the topic, you know, was like a great way to start it, you know, because right. he's already being branded as like this sort of like I this, thought so too. This yeah. almost like demon and simply because of some like physical deformities he has. But I think that goes in right away to establish for him like this need to be, you know, this uh, almost like sort of macho, big, larger-than-life kind of figure, you know? And I will say for Duval, I think he does capture that physicality very well. Like, when you see him moving around as Stalin, you described him as kind of like this, like, big, hulking thing. And, you know, he kind of stalks around the Kremlin like Frankenstein's monster a bit, you know? There's, There's a lot of, like, in Duval's... I think, you know, movement and stuff like I feel like it's a very conscious choice for him, you know, and not just him, but also for Stalin, who was very concerned about his image. You know, he gave himself that name, Stalin, which means steel. You know, he comes from this like this guy that's rejected by the army. It's almost like Captain America, you know, this weakling, you know, who has to then become the figure of Russia, the symbol of strength and steel. But I do, you know, I do think that uh, regrettably the film, although it is mentioned, it does not show you any of his pre-1917 activity in which, talk about ripe for, uh, you know, movie uh, material, but he was robbing banks for the Bolsheviks going back many years and doing lots of gangster activities. So it is kind of fucking weird or funny, I guess, that it, it starts after the revolution and as he's sort of like getting out of, you know, prison for his political uh, and criminal activities. But there's like a whole, that's the first act of the gangster saga is like him picking up the gun, you know, we don't see that. And I really wish we did, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm a heist movie guy. So I'm thinking like, there's there were some daring robberies and heists that they did back in the day because he is still a puzzle really by the end. I mean, I'll be honest, like I don't feel like like I, I got emotional insight into him, but I did not get any, uh, you know, any other sort of insight because, again, I do think it is this kind of like American thing. So they're not they're not going to get bogged down in, you know, what we know the realities were of like people having long d- discussions and debates and arguments about what socialism and communism are and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And all the actual sort of ideological disputes. It's a fucking HBO movie. We're not going to you're not going to get bogged down. This is not a Ken Loach movie. Right. right? And yeah. So you got to take it for what it is. Right. And it's yeah, this melodrama uh, mm-hmm. not a political sort of tract but again you know it's like like any thing about russia made in the last in the, you know the last uh, 80 years but in this country you got to be a little skeptical about it yeah i mean i think they try to boil down a lot of his you know why he did these things and why he you know had these people killed and purged and stuff i think the film tries to a certain extent to boil it down to him just sort of being slighted in in sort of social situations by people, which is probably true in a lot of respect. He was a very cruel person. It's it's well documented. But I think the movie, in in its way of trying to, in any respect, make him sympathetic, they they try to show people who had like, you know, schemed against him. Or you know, I love. Uh, there's one of my favorite scenes I think in the movie is like uh, one of his good friends Bukharin. It's his wedding. 
and they're having this great party in, in Bukharin's apartment and they're celebrating his wedding and everyone's having a really good time. And then there's a knock on the door and it's just Stalin by himself. And he's like, Bukharin, congratulations. You forgot. <laughs> congratulations. Did you think you would marry our Nikolai? And Stalin not know about it. <laughs> Nikolai, Nikolai, you've you outgalloped me again. <laughs> and it's like immediately everybody's like, fuck. Like Stalin's here. And he just comes in and just kills the vibe right yeah. away. Yeah. You know? And it mirrors the opening in which, uh, or in the sort of beginning of the film when Stalin gets married to Nadia. And that's like a big you know, part of the movie and the story. And very notably, Trotsky is not invited to Stalin's wedding. And so then this repeats with Stalin not being, being invited to Bukharin's wedding and then he immediately yeah he at least he shows up with champagne and he actually you know he behaves himself he gives a nice toast but then immediately right he singles out kirov and is like we need to talk uh and that's sort of like the beginning of yeah the sort of paranoid uh sort of trip that leads directly to uh kirov's (laughs) execution well yes (laughs) or assassination that and the scene where kirov uh, Kirov is uh, we don't want to get so bogged down here folks so you're going to have to forgive us but you know these are all guys who are like in the you know the Soviet Communist Party and officials and it'll get pointless if we dive too deep into that but anyway Kirov is a guy that at first Stalin sort of embraces and, and puts into like a position of power like he sends him to like Leningrad you know to be in charge of the party over there or something and Kirov shows up to his to Stalin's you know office or apartment wherever he is and he presents Stalin with a gift and it's it's this polar bear pelt you know he's got this stu- like this stuffed polar bear like rug and he's like I shot it myself and Stalin's like you killed it yourself huh? A single shot. How far? Ten meters. No way, wait. You stood ten meters away from this. I don't believe that. Who could do that? I mean, who could do it? Could you do it, Iron Pants? (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't be ironing your pants, would it? (laughs) Would it? You're going to Leningrad to replace Zinoviev. Sergo's going too, and Kaganovich. I'm counting on you. Aye. Ten meters. You shot this from ten meters, Yagoda. Ten meters. Who could believe that? They have to admire a man like that. And watch him. And go to Leningrad and keep an eye on them. Especially, especially Kirov. Fuck this guy. Like, this guy's a friend to me. Because he's like a strong man and a sportsman and all this stuff, you know? So it's like these weird, like, these just these personal, like perceived slights you know and insecurities that just 
sort of just bubble under the surface for him, you know, which then, of course, lead to some guy getting shot in the back of the head by the NKVD. Right. It is funny that all of these little things do kind of feel like they are a part of, like, that the film is, like, kind of using The Godfather as a jumping off point because you've got all these weddings, you've got all these betrayals. It's so much about family. It's so much about... You know, his son that he abandoned, his wife, and then his new daughter, and, and you know, th- those sorts of plot devices throughout. And it is a very American way of telling this story. And I guess another thing I wanted to talk about, you know, we were bringing up the writer who also wrote another Sympathy for the Devil film that we haven't checked out yet, but might be featured later on the pod, which is the George Wallace oh, yeah. biopic. That, I've seen that. Oh, you have seen oh, that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Frankenheimer, oh, wow. baby. Frankenheimer, but yeah, was Paul, a TNT. There was a TNT yeah. original movie. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to circle back to this because when I read the Studio by John Gregory Dunn last year, Paul Monash was a producer at Fox at the time in the in the late '60s, and he's one of the most colorful figures of the book because he's in the the '70s or '60s and '70s. He was you know producing a lot of television, and he had of course r- risen to sort of like fame in Hollywood as the creator of The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. And Peyton Place, you know, two of the pillars of the the actual golden age of television. And Monash in the studio comes off like really funny. He's this very cynical kind of, I mean, he's like any Hollywood guy. He's like so full of shit, but very funny and charming. But reveal, he outs himself very early on as sort of like this nihilistic liberal who's really looking for just like sensational stories that he can exploit for motion pictures. And so he he was always doing this like ripped in the headline stuff and he talks in the studio about going to protests in 1967 just for the action <laughs> and, shit, and shit like that didn't he also produce Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was, didn't he have something I, yes, to do with it yes because that was a, uh, what's his name Zanuck Jr. or whatever but yeah Monash is, is very legendary for his television work and for his treatment of like historical stuff and you know as well. it if we then take that even maybe a little bit further, if we want to stretch that out, I mean, there is an almost element of this kind of being a story of like studio betrayal and backstabbing and insecurity and phoniness, you know, like and cutthroat sort of advancement, you know. I thought of Howard Hughes multiple times. Look, and you can, you know, he ran he ran a film studio. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe that's a point that you know, you wish could have been played with more because like you pointed out the scene where, you know, they, they talk about, you know, when Svetlana's like, my father loved movies and he loved American movies and he loved Chaplin. And they show that I was hoping for like a whole segment of just Stalin watching different movies and, and connecting things because it's also should be pointed out for those who don't know, um, you know, legend has it that Stalin ordered the, the, NKVD KGB to assassinate John Wayne it was like a global mandate like if you can find the Duke and put him down that'll be great for us because he saw John Wayne as a symbol of American like strength and power and individuality so oh you could have made that so good too because right there's a whole pointed scene I mean they have to do the classic like Stalin allies with Hitler moment and it's all it's all played about how 
Stalin, you know, sort of respects Hitler as this strong man and as this, uh, you know, controlling all powerful kind of figure. And he sort of sees himself in the, in this moment in the film. He sees himself in Hitler and and doesn't think he has bad intentions very naively. And imagine if, yeah, you also had him like watching, you know, like Ford Westerns oh, yeah. in between some of these scenes and then like coming up with like, you know, Absolutely. oh God, I wish. Because yeah, that's specifically like there's the line when he's like watching he watches a chaplain film and then they watch a newsreel of like you know yeah, a nazi it's rally like a nazi party yeah and uh and then he's like walking in the hallway and he says you've got to admire hitler he knows what he wants he isn't afraid to go for it he scares the british and french but not comrade Stalin. he's a fascist hard to destroy us he says it over and over he says a lot of things we all do I think right now Hitler is looking east, and he's saying that Stalin, I can work with him. And of course, as history shows, that gamble was was very wrong and on his part. So, but yeah, you know, there's there's so much in this film. I think that's why for me it's like an uneven experience that you watch it and you're like, I wish there was more of that. I mean, in the in the opening, even you have. Maximilian Schell, who we haven't even mentioned, Maximilian Schell, the great Maximilian Schell, is playing Lenin in the opening of the film because we begin in the October Revolution. And I wanted so much more of like that relationship explored as well. And partly also because I think Schell is giving a great... Eh, Maybe a great at times performance, uh, but also in well, hilarious I feel like, makeup. I feel like Lennon sort of written kind of buffoony in this a little bit. The corniest part is when you know Lennon. It's after Lennon had his stroke, and I think the corniest part is is when he's trying to Maximilian Schell's you know Lennon suffering from this the stroke that he had, and he's trying to put a sugar cube into his like teacup, and he's like you see his like hand shaking as he's trying to bring the the sugar cube over to the cup, and it's like. Uh, and he like misses the cup and drops the sugar cube next to it. It's like, oh, and then Lennon's ending in this film is where he gets stuck uh, in his sort of like post stroke kind of debilitation, repeating, trying to repeat the word, trying to say the word revolution, but getting caught on it like a broken record. And he's going like, rev, 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 rev. And that's how we end on <laughs> Lennon. And it's such a like, it's such a hokey, corny kind of way. And like yeah. you said, yeah shows him to be this buffoon. But also historically, it should be pointed out that, you know, the very final letter that Lenin was able to dictate before his death, the very final letter that he dictated was about Stalin and about his rules. Well, yeah, they read uh, they read it in that meeting uh, when they're all sort of like voting uh, on who should be... Uh, replacing, you know... Yeah, Lenin in the, you know in the party or whatever. Uh, and that's when like the, they're expecting Trotsky to make his power play, but he's sort of, you know, the people, the, the people in the room end up backing Stalin. And that's sort of like the beginning of the, of the end for Trotsky, but that's their, that's their sort of like silver bullet. They're like, look, Lenin didn't even like the guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's, it's true. Like the, the letter is very brief and it, it specifically uses the word rudeness and connivance. Like, and that's totally true. So yeah, yeah he's got a real potty mouth throughout the film. Stalin. <laughs> oh yeah. He's like, you stupid bitch. Or, you know, that's he's probably like, you beat the shit out of yeah. me. Like he says like very American profane sentences throughout the film that that's my biggest laugh. problem with stalin is that he swore too much <laughs> yeah, yeah that guy yeah. well because right i mean like let's also be honest that 
I think, like you said, there's there's a lot that sort of does get glossed over, and it does focus a lot. The film primarily focuses on like the purges yes. of his fellow party members, mm-hmm. and you know some military officers and unfortunate NKVD officials. But it doesn't really, really go into a lot of the details of a lot of the other sort of mass murder that he was responsible for, or or certainly that his system, the system that he was at the head of, took part in. So, you know, you you kind of start to sit there and just go, oh, he was just really shitty to a lot of the these other people around him. But it doesn't really, aside from like a little title card at the end, like really get into a lot of the violent horror of that time period. You know, it's just a, like you said, almost like a, a chamber drama, really. Yeah, it's like here's all his friends and like the friends of Eddie Coyle, they were fake friends and they all had to be shot in the end. But right, I mean, yeah, I know like compared to, the again, the larger picture, which, you yeah, you could argue maybe it's fucking impossible to capture, you know? Uh, maybe only Zygavertov could have done it or Eisenstein could have done could have done it, you know, in in another way. Right? Yeah, it's impossible in this mode of filmmaking. Yeah, I think it's impossible in most because any any well, film. Well, I bet w- Benning could do a good Stalin movie. I I agree. Yeah, <laughs> that could capture quite a lot of it. So I guess like one of the questions is then like uh, to to the prompt: uh, Do you feel like this measures uh, up to that in in the sense that this presents Stalin as sympathetic do you think that the film achieves that or is he really just a a monster after all yeah that's a good question i mean i feel like it again like my read on the way he was framed and how the film works is that he's a leader who had these shortcomings and then there were all these very unfortunate things that resulted from that that he like leaned too heavily into things that may have been his strengths initially if they were even really qualified as strengths. But yeah, I mean, I do think there is an active attempt to humanize him to like, he's like, he's a man, a man that, and an enigma though, because it, it, it can't answer so many questions about him, but it is trying to make him appear to us as like just another man who was like faced with, with so much and controlled so much. And then I think Paul Manesh's stamp on the film is is very clear because it is like it, it was with, with like him doing Peyton Place it's like it is like a soap opera godfather right and it is like it's all those like petty little squabbles you know because yeah even when it's when he does start killing off all his all his buddies what's the um what's the guy from the fugitive that's in this oh your own crabe is the right. actor's name right yeah uh, when yeah when Bukharin, he plays Bukharin. right when yeah when he when they order his assassination then you know it's like oh let stalin read this you know and then stalin has his private moment while you know the man who delivered the message is like sneakily looking in the mirror but yeah it's trying to show like oh stalin did feel bad he was conflicted he had all these you know so yeah i do think it tries to to humanize the devil a bit Especially, I think, with the scenes between him and his wife, who in this film is played by Julia Ormond. And, you know, the film certainly implies that he drove her to suicide, you know? I mean, yeah, he like stuffed his cigarette down his shirt when she was like, the peasants are a little upset. I was at a train station and they they wanted me to let you know about what's going on out there. So here I am letting you know. And then he puts a cigarette on her chest. Get out of here. Oh, cigar, oh, was it a yeah. Cigar? Oof, okay. oof, even worse, yeah. I love that, too, then, because 
you have Beria, you know, the, the, the actor who's playing Lavrenti Beria, the, the head of the NKVD, like right after Stalin puts his cigar out on his wife in the middle of this party and everyone's like horrified, Beria jumps up and yells at the orchestra, play, 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 like, <laughs> like <laughs> fix the mood, you know, like fix the vibe. Stalin just put a cigar out on his wife, like, holy fuck, you know? <laughs> but like, I think in some of those moments, like, yeah, it, it, it works. I think that Duvall is doing his level best to, I think, add to that. He's committed, yeah. Very much so. And I I should point out, I don't know if you saw this or read this anywhere, but I read an interview with Duvall from 2011 where he said that his best his best work was this movie. (laughs) And particularly, he said the final scene. They said in this interview from 2011, like he was at his home and they were talking about his roles and his career and he walked over to the shelf, they said, and he pulled out a copy of Stalin and he held it up and he said, my final scene in this movie, that's the best I can do. When he raises his hand Respectfully, and does the little sir, curse. I disagree. No, yeah. no. Well, yeah. He's not talking about the very final scene because like, oh. the very final scene is just him laying on his deathbed. I was going to say he doesn't say anything. Yeah. I can lay better than anybody else. Right. But it is a great scene, I think. It's the scene with him and his daughter when she's come back. Right. And this is him right before his death. And you see after all this and everything that he's been through, now he's starting to become very senile. He's starting, as they say, like to have issues with his memory. He's maybe got dementia. And it's just him sitting in his room making those collages on his wall. And he's just cutting out little pictures from magazines. And like he gives one to his daughter. And it's like a picture of like a young peasant girl, this like idealized Russian woman. He's got this little smile on his face like... This is just where he is now, you know, in his mind. And I think it is maybe for me, like one of, if not the most humanizing moments of him in this film. It's just now this, this old man who's dying and all he has now are perhaps fading memories and, and uh, a lost sense of even who he is and what he's done in his life. And now he's just this man who, who, you know, through 20 million bodies at Germany to basically like win World War II and and responsible for millions of other fucking deaths through through famine and and murder and purges and here he is just with his little life magazine or whatever cutting yeah. out pictures that he likes and and putting them up on the wall you know as his little hobby you know this 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 for some people this like personification of evil you know but Duval felt that that scene was like the greatest bit of acting he'd ever done maybe Duvall's losing his mind well, like <laughs> yeah yeah well the other scene that I really like I don't know if you guys picked up on this uh but the other like little bit that I loved again I think of like you know taking him down from that iconic status was like when World War II breaks out and you know some have said the greatest intelligence failure in military history of all time is Pearl Harbor but there are others who say the greatest military intelligence failure of all time was Stalin dropping the ball on, you know, Hitler invading Russia at the beginning of World War II because, you know, they talk about the sheer number of German troops that had to get basically on the Russian border. I mean, you're talking about like millions of men and that there were some going like, you know, this is bad news. But Stalin was like, no, 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 no. Hitler and I got a deal. We're, he, we signed a non-aggression pact. He's not going to attack. He's not going to attack. And everybody's like, there's fucking millions. <laughs> they're, they're, they're ready to go. They're on the fucking board. There's millions of them. So like in that moment when like it's the early days of, you know, Operation Barbarossa and the Germans are just like rolling across hundreds of miles of Russia. Everything seems to be collapsing. 
they then go to Stalin like in his apartment and apparently he's been in his room for like 10 days and there's that shot of him with like the blanket over his head and he's just slumped on the ground with like a beard and he's just kind of like you know like I love that shot like it was like the most pathetic shot of him in the whole movie you know when everyone's like dude you gotta do something like this is bad like you know you have to like rejoin us here like we need you like I think that's even what they said like Because he's basically just like giving up. He's like, I fucking blew it, you know? And it's also the only moment when someone struck out against him publicly, you know, he gets like that Colin, the 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 like commissar, one of his officers, like shouts at him in the situation room and it's like, This is all your fucking fault. Like, you blew it. You were the one who said he wasn't gonna attack. You were the one who left us here. This is all you and like shouts at him and like tells him he's failed. and he doesn't have this guy purged. Well, it's yeah, a moment in the scene when when he's sort of woken from this zombie-like slum, slumber and he looks at him and he's like, They didn't kill you. <laughs> How could they? Without Stalin's orders. Yeah, that to me was that was like a gala, the gallows humor that I that I wanted from this movie was it was in that moment for sure. And it is, yeah, it is like a very striking shot. And I think he looks pretty good with the beard. He should have thought more about (laughs) keeping that. But then they go right after that scene to, you know, his first radio address to the nation. And again, I think it's another great moment of Robert Duvall's performance. When he's chugging the water. Yes. Yeah, he's so nervous. And that's you can see footage of that, you know, and it's very famous because Stalin was this, you know, orator and this this man who was very composed whenever he gives speeches. And you could see how nervous he is. Yeah, like you said, he's just like gulping down oh, glasses of down. water. His voice is like shaking as he's talking to the nation, like, we're definitely gonna beat these guys. And he's like sipping down his water. And like it's another really really good mode. I think Duval at times is like, it breaks through and, and it feels very like he's the word you've used, like humanizing and, and you kind of see the, the, the person behind the pounds of makeup and prosthetic yeah. nose and everything. <laughs> but like, yeah, there's a couple flashes in this film, but, but it, yeah, my two favorite shots of that are when he's feeding the squirrel with his daughter when he's like carrying her in the snow and he's like giving her like the peanuts or whatever to mm-hmm. feed to that little Russian squirrel with the crazy hair. That's really nice. And then I love the, I mean, humanizing in the sense that it's just like relatable is the, that great moment. Um, the cutaway of when he's in the sweat lodge and he's just getting whacked with the leaves, you know, here's a man who's stressed and just needs a good sweat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of world war two, that's his like yeah. workout montage. He's <laughs> right. in a, he's in a rush of banya just getting beat with like leaves. Like <laughs> I liked that, you know, and he's like, all right, I'm getting my groove back. Let's go. Yeah, and then throw 20 million bodies at the German war machine. <laughs> like not one step back, but see, that's also something, right? Like, you know, you th- if Stalin's legacy in any way, shape or form 
as a complicated figure has been sort of, you know, like there's the ending, right? Where what's the definitive statement about Stalin that this movie makes? It doesn't make a definitive statement. No, right? it because ends with an argument or a disagreement between Molotov and Khrushchev after the death of Stalin. And Khrushchev is, of course, as he later would, uh, is very critical uh, of Stalin. And he says, you know, Have you thought about it? About what we'll say after Stalin dies? About what? His crimes. What crimes? Millions. Nikita, you're too emotional. You talk too much. Who are we to judge Stalin? Before him, we were a weak, backward country. Now look at us. We control half of Europe. The whole of China. We have the atomic bomb. We command respect. Without Stalin, it would have taken 20 years longer. I don't believe that. Without the purges, the arrests, the killings, without Stalin, we could have been a great nation. Our history required Stalin. So the film ends with the classic defense of Stalin, right? He did do rapid industrialization. He did win World War II. He did create the first full literate generation of Russians, right? And there's plenty of, you know, quote unquote good things that he did, Kids right? Kids loved him. And yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and again, you know, obviously we're, you know, we were certainly fed a, a, a devil-like portrayal of Stalin our entire lives as Americans, right? But it's funny to think, you know, there's the famous quote from Mao uh, where he said, well, he was 70% good and 30% bad, right? So why don't we take, you know, what we see as the good and leave the bad? And this is like later, Deng Xiaoping would make the same joke about Mao and go, well, Mao is, you know, again, and, and it is this sort of, yeah, cosmic joke in the history of communism or history of 20th century communism. And the film doesn't, like, as much as that statement is there at the ending, right? Like, the film doesn't, give us a whole lot of that no right? it actually cuts so quickly through world war ii i was like yeah oh we're really gonna downplay the soviets be okay we're gonna do that and next thing you know it's over and i yeah i did find that quite puzzling because if anything really cements his legacy as like well you you needed a guy like that to get through something like that. Like the film doesn't really go to show that, you know, no, it, doesn't. Like, <laughs> it doesn't dive into like the crazy orders that he started to give out, you know, like they do show one bit where he tells him like anyone who retreats machine gun him. And that's sort of like an oversimplification, but like, again, right. This is a written by an American and, and we've also grown up in a country which long has been basically like, well, world war two started with Pearl Harbor and then, uh, D-Day happened and then, you know, we, we eventually won, right? You know, but the reality of World War II is that that was a war, at least in Europe, between Hitler and Stalin, yeah. you know, and the film does basically give us, as you pointed out earlier, Ryan, like a, a just a bit of newsreel footage, like a montage, you know? Yeah. Did you guys read, too, that the film had a ghost rewrite by uh, the legendary blacklisted communist Paul Jericho? Because I, no. I guess Passer at a certain point was like, all right, well, we've got, you know, the Monash script. We got to get a communist in here to 
balance it out. And obviously, I guess the, you know, the changes couldn't have been that drastic, but no. it was something that Passer attempted was to say, okay, let's get Jericho, let's get him in here, let's get a leftist perspective on the thing. But still, life, I didn't really... <laughs> see a lot of that I in the, in the movie you know? again right they don't really and maybe it's a conscious choice because they're sort of worried about you know audience attention oh, or yeah. something like that that they don't really get into you know the the policy disagreements or whatever it, it just does again boil down to the more like you said godfather-esque human side of like well, you know, you were mean to me once and I don't like you, so now I'm going to kill you. Right. You, you embarrassed me at the wedding or yeah. some shit. And like now that, he's got to give know? a stern talking to the, the kulaks and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and yeah. tell them about grain and shut the fuck up or whatever. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, because it is interesting that it's directed by, you know, someone who, you know, Ivan Pastor, like, came from, like, the Czech Republic, like, during the the soviet rule and during a very tumultuous time of soviet rule as well uh and that you know even from that sort of mind of of you know direction like there isn't really that much of a definitive sort of statement here that's made you know with this money and with these resources and it is just then this sort of family chamber drama and there's a couple of Dance numbers too. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> Duval does a couple yes. dance numbers. Yeah, uh, and specifically my favorite the 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 great scene at the end when Stalin is sort of you know, he tells everyone the soup has been poisoned, just trolling them. <laughs> yeah. But it's also in that scene when he's like just totally ripping on Khrushchev, and then they force Khrushchev to dance, and then he does, and then Stalin gets up, and then next thing you know, Stalin's just like sitting. On Khrushchev, <laughs> yeah, humiliating yeah. him in this, yeah, this comical dance set yes. piece. But uh, winded quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but then he has to sit down because yeah. he's having Sip too much water. fun. Yeah. But I, I'm glad you bring that up, too, because I think that the guy who's playing Khrushchev is, like, low-key, I think, one of the best performers in the whole film because he just manages that you know, like who Khrushchev was and what he went through, that he is like Stalin's punching bag and his clown and like, you know, his like, you know, curly from the three stooges. You know, he there's the scene earlier where he like he they're all sitting around, he just dumps a glass of wine on his head and Khrushchev's just like, ah ha 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 like he was this like he had to just laugh and and be the punchline for Stalin's jokes. And that ultimately is part of what would, you know, help him survive, you know, yeah. is being the buffoon, playing the clown. You know, yeah, just and, as what he would get into power and use, yeah, use Stalin to, you know, further himself. Again, this idea, you know, they didn't use the term de-Stalinization, but that's sort of what Khrushchev, you know, sort of initiated in, in 56, not long after uh, the death and this sort of like, no, we're going to new direction, folks, yeah. or whatever. No more cults of personality, you know? Yeah, I mean, it is amazing, though, because I did in, in sort of some research for the topic, I watched State funeral, the recent documentary made out of archival footage of of Stalin's funeral. And I mean, it is this just massive outpouring. And again, you watch this and you're like, look, all the, not, all, not all these people are fucking brainwashed. Like this guy, you know, got got them through a lot. He was certainly, you know, within his own country, hated and loved on, on a mass scale. Right. It's not like these people were pretending they know 
what they'd been through, right? And especially anyone who lived through the war. Like, this is a guy who led them through that, yes. right? And that meant a lot to, you know, yes. so many people. And, and it should, right? I mean, like, history, the record by now is pretty clear. I mean, like, the German war against Russia was a war of annihilation. So for those people, as you're saying, like, he was the savior, you know? And as controversial as, you know, his leadership was, for him to, to be at least perceived as you know, the figure that steered the ship through with some very harsh policies at times. Like, you're right. There's a lot of people who would have to look at that moment and go, like, he also saved us. He also saved the nation. And we should say as a as a world, even, like, to an extent, Stalin ground the German war machine into paste. But that's where, you know, the bulk of the war was fought, where the German war machine was, was broken. And to your point, Marsh, you know, there's that great line um, in the 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 oration of you know his daughter who's speaking in voiceover throughout the film, and it's even early on where that's kind of set up when they're at Lenin's funeral that you know Stalin sort of organized, and then his daughter says in voiceover, "My father understood how much the Russian soul craved a god." Now that religion was illegal, right? And it's that same idea that okay, if we are no longer praying to a god, who are we praying to? Yeah, well, it's, again, and that was even a controversial thing within the the communist revolution was this idea of, like, going from a czar to, to what? A, a, you know, like... A general the, secretary. The, the, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, they never, they never even had the, the proper two-stage revolution where liberal democracy has a bourgeois revolution that overthrows the czar and then the socialist revolution overthrows the liberal democracy when you when they went from czar nicholas to comrade lenin then to comrade stalin right again there's a historical continuity of the leader Mm -hmm. and even the divine leader up until 1917 right they were God. I can't remember. Have you seen any of the embalmed communist leaders <laughs> on your world travels? Have you been to any of them? Oh, no. I've never been to Russia. Well, uh, I wasn't sure if you had seen Mao. Can't you go see Mao? Uh, yes, uh, but I didn't when I was yeah. in China. Uh, I've seen Ho Chi Minh. Oh. It was incredible. And it is like, you know, we're talking about state funeral and like the way that, you know, w- w- that these figures are sort of, you know, revered in the countries. I mean, it was, it felt like I was attending a funeral procession because everyone who walked around, I mean, people were openly weeping mm-hmm. um, throughout the process. All for Uncle Ho. All for Uncle Ho. But yeah, that was... <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, an unforgettable experience. But yeah, there is that, there's that reverence there, you know, and it still exists to this day for a lot. Of, uh, but yeah, we should, we should all go. We could do a field trip maybe a few years from now. Sure. And go to I've see Stalin. I've always wanted to. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, this film... Certainly does make an effort to humanize Stalin, while our other film, I think, so much of its power and its horror comes from its simple humanizing of the Unabomber. And with experimental film, I mean, I feel like, for me, the easiest way to talk about it is just my experience watching the film at first, and just, like, the way I was feeling while I was watching it. When it started and we were presented with the first shot and 
the first shot we're given is spring and it's from early journals in 1972 and it's it's a pretty foggy day. Much of the mountains in the background are obstructed by clouds. And then, you know, we're sort of presented with the structuralist game of at least how this will work. You know, we're, we're taught how to watch the film with the first shot. It's 30 minutes long. Benning is reading from the, the journals uninterrupted and he doesn't seem to edit it either because there are occasionally a couple flubs and he just like keeps moving forward. He's just reading it in one go. However, when I had read about the film beforehand, I, for some reason, just assumed that he would be talking over the entire film, but that's not the case. When he finishes his readings, which usually only last 10 minutes, he then lets the shot play out for an additional 20 minutes or however much is left of that 30-minute block that he's like set aside for, for each reading. And yeah, I guess, I mean, if we want to structure this conversation based off of if we go a shot at a time or you know, we could do whatever. But I mean, when I was watching that first shot and I was listening to it and so much of what is read is talking about like the Unabomber's early survivalist primitivism when he's out in the woods. He's talking about all the different things he's hunting, rabbits and squirrels. He does eventually bring up a beef he has with a neighbor down the road. He's like, this guy's a jerk. You know, he's actually, he says, on the way back, I had the misfortune to meet the Jagoff who has been staying in the cabin, which I passed on the way up here. And that to, is just such a funny Chicagoland giveaway yep. that, you know, Jag-off. this guy's in the woods in Montana and his mental narration is like, this guy's a fucking jag off which is incredible and yeah he calls him a cocksucker Mm -hmm. and Um, and he talks about how you know he 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 this is all in references like i i can't truly be alone it's like even here all the way out in montana and like helena national forest there's still this cabin that like i keep passing by and that guy's trying to connect with him but anyways when i was watching it I was immediately quite moved. I mean, the first shot is extremely soothing because after Benning stops speaking, there's a bit of time you can hear some of the birds, but then it starts to rain a bit. And I just, I remember finding it extremely relaxing as the rain came through. But then, yeah, with each subsequent shot, it was a peculiar viewing experience where I would be taking notes, you know, trying to write down as much as I could about what Benning was saying so I would, like, have it noted for later, but then I could relax once he stopped talking and kind of soak in the nature. And then so much of what the Unabomber was complaining about would happen in these nature shots. He would complain about hearing people riding, you know, dirt bikes or snowmobiles out in the distance or jets flying over, or, you know, he, he, he's maybe at like a beautiful cirque and then, oh, here comes a helicopter just like ruining his day or they're talking about looking for oil out there. And that happens in the film. You hear large iron machines as, you know, as he describes them. And yeah, and it made me frustrated while I was watching it. I was like, ah, like there's something in the way here. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's one of the ways the film frightened me so much too. Uh, is because I felt like I was being put inside his head by like listening to his thoughts and then experiencing what he was experiencing. Well, you know, I, I think, <clears throat> again, trying to establish also a connection between the two. I mean, they're at least sort of similar on a, on a, on a very basic structural level in that in each of these segments, like we are seeing the the evolution, the uh, the ascension of like Ted Kaczynski, this guy is, who starts as just a, a man that's just trying to get off the grid 
to eventually the Unabomber, right? And in a similar way that, you know, we sort of start with Stalin as this just, you know, just this guy, this schmo who gets rejected by the army or something, and then, you know, ascends himself. And and partly through his ascension, it's because of these 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 invasions of of whatever, these things that pissed him off, these people that pissed him off, these these figures or whoever. And I think that, yeah, if you look at Stemple Pass, again, on a very simple sort of superficial way, like each of these segments is presenting like a a, a distinct period in his life. And we see that, that growth because Mm -hmm. that first segment, even that you're talking about, like it struck me right away that he's going through this almost in his diaries, in his journals, this clinical mathematicians sort of uh, evaluation of talking like, about how many cartridges <clears throat> he expelled shooting a squirrel how much it weighed how he cooked it right and like stalin he enjoys a nice soup a good broth <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right but those moments then get like punctuated by anger by you know personal gripes that he has that are now like you know allowing violence to start to sort of like bubble up underneath you know, whatever his mission was at that time, which at least at first seemed to be simply, you know, living uh, isolated in the woods, you know, away from people and that sort of thing. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he's clearly attempting this kind of like Walden-esque thing. And I do think it should be mentioned that this film, in relation to Benning's work, this was something that he had done in the in the early 2010s where he just personally felt creatively frustrated. And so he built a replica of Thoreau's cabin. And then he realized he needed a counterpoint of Thoreau's cabin. And so he created Kaczynski's cabin. (laughs) And then he made a film called like The Two Cabins, where both of these cabins are like in the shot. I haven't seen it yet. But like what's interesting about that, right, is he's in this first section. We're hearing, yeah, this this attempt at this utopian sort of like Luddite kind of lifestyle. But he just has, you know, like the like you said, these antisocial tendencies that sort of bubble to the surface. And I loved the part where, you know, Benning's reading from the diary and he's talking about, oh, yeah, this guy gave me a bunch of sausage. Uh, Frankfurters. Yeah, Frankfurters. this guy gave me a bunch of Frankfurters. Was he trying to be especially generous because he had some idea that I am impoverished? One of the main satisfactions of being up here is doing everything for myself. He's a decent enough guy and all that, but how can I explain to him that I would rather catch my own wild meat than eat Frankfurters? <laughs> and he's like pissed because this guy was like, hey, I got some extra Frankfurters. Why don't you have them? As repayment for some services, too, because he, like, yeah, he was cutting down wood. For, it's he true. He providing him with wood. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's obsessed with this sort of like individual notion of freedom. And I, and I guess I do think in, you know, the accidental pairing of these films, it's like, right, Stalin, of course, pursuing this you know, collectivist sort of uh, <laughs> dream, or, you know, through violence. And then Kaczynski, the radical individual who is, yeah, like an, the opposite extreme, but also, again, yeah, there's like this anger, this violence or this cruelty within him of all these things that, Absolutely. you know. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's, point, man. I mean, like Stalin, this man who will do whatever he can to be adored by the people, surrounded by the people, lifted up by the people, and fucking Kaczynski, like, 
he wants every person on the face of the planet gone, it seems, you know? And I think that initial story he tells really is like the perfect introduction to what he was seeking and maybe what value there was in what he was seeking, but also his main failures for why he could never like reach that in a healthy or constructive way, I guess you could say. And I, you know, so I, I think back on, um, one of my favorite authors, William Volman, at one point discovered that he was a Unabomber suspect. He like got access to his redacted FBI files, and he was, you know, one of thousands of people that was considered to be the Unabomber. But you know, he went back, and you know, it, it was he has a great piece about reading his FBI file and realizing people who you know said things about him that he wasn't expecting, and. But one thing, you know, he talks about, and so he's had like a lifelong obsession with the Unabomber because of this, because he sort of feels like he's been linked with him. And, you know, Volman always talks about after reading the manifesto, but then seeing all these actions, it's like the Unabomber is this guy who like completely, you know, he has his main failings are he has no empathy, even if his ends, what he's thinking about, like in his manifesto have a lot of logic and reason. And especially like, here's a man who's like incredibly intellectual, you know, he's a math professor. And he also has no sense of proportionality, <laughs> right? And even with this Frankfurter story, here you go. Here's this guy who, a neighbor who clearly has empathy and proportionality. He's like, oh yeah, well, you, you know, you help me with some wood. I'm going to bring you some Frankfurters. And he's just like, fuck you. Like, I cannot believe you don't understand the wavelength that I'm on. It's interesting that you bring up that, this idea of like empathy and saying that he lacks empathy because th the thing that actually struck me throughout at least like the first two sections, you know, before he goes full fucking Unabomber, right? And then his obsession is very clear, but like it, it's incredible how much empathy he actually has for animals mm -hmm. and for nature. He does have empathy, just not for humans because when he describes again, even like killing animals. Like he says things like, I felt bad. Like I felt bad killing this animal that seemed so alert, right? At one point. And you know, when he describes shooting them, he, he, he does it in a, in a kind of clinical way, I think to also sort of distance himself because though he's doing it for survival and it seems very necessary, it also strikes me that he feels a little bit guilty about killing these animals, you know, that he respects the animals, like in, in the sense of it being this sort of like, it's the circle of life. It's the food chain. I'm I'm also a creature living here. But it was like he has so much. It seemed to me he had so much more empathy for animals, for for squirrels, and for that coyote that he brings up shooting. You know than he does for the jagoff who's just trying to have a human connection. <laughs> right. You know? like, yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, there's even like kind of some beautiful accidental poetry with his story about eating the porcupine and then getting a gum infection from eating the porcupine as if it's like, yeah, again, like, oh, well, I'm the predator here and, you know, here I'm, I'm getting an infection, right? Like, I'm not sure that's exactly what he was communicating, but I was feeling that because I was thinking about him. Yeah, I agree. He, he does clearly show a lot of empathy for animals whenever, and then he'll go on to the next thing where he's talking about, you know, the technological society and how anyone who aligns themselves with that, you know, is just morally reprehensible in his book, deserving of like nothing, no empathy at all. Well, deserving to be blown up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to be blown up, exactly. Yeah, and we should note, so this first shot, again, it's, you know, it's so hard to describe in time and in duration. But the, again, these shots, of course, they're not random, right? They are 
carefully selected sections of however fucking long he had to roll a camera to find these moments, mm-hmm. right? But they are specifically chosen unbroken moments, right? So in the first shot, it's like a fog rolls like completely in and then dissipates and then the rains harder and then it gets darker and then the clouds recede from the mountain and then it's silent and then kind of drizzling and then the sun comes back out Mm -hmm. and then it cuts to black for like 10 seconds right yeah Uh, and then we're brought into the second shot the confession of his misdeeds yeah it's uh from labeled by benning it's it's the season fall labeled from a concealed packet and then it's yeah essentially a confession of a series of of early crimes done by Kaczynski in 1977, 1979. And because it's fall now, of course, whereas in spring it was very green, now it's like that orange, brown, yellow, darker green uh, kind of vibe. Yeah, kind of like a desert autumn, you know. Yeah, and there's smoke puffing from the cabin throughout this entire 30-minute shot. Yeah, I was shook by that, and then also by the fact that the smoke never returns, particularly in winter. I thought it was, because then the next shot is winter, and there is no smoke from the chimney. And yeah, when you're talking, I think it's also worth just mentioning very briefly when you're mentioning that, you know, he's carefully selecting these moments from however long he was recording, He's not reading behind the camera. The, and that's why I was mentioning how he doesn't edit it or if he stumbles over words, he just keeps going. Because he was, just, it was recorded elsewhere and then put on top of these like carefully selected 30-minute chunks. Again, you know, uh, from a structural per- perspective um, of, of how we, we are introduced to the idea of this, this figure that we've often thought of as just like this maniacal bomber figure right this 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 absolute nut job but that first um section first shot if you'd like to even call it that uh you know it it goes to such lengths to yes like humanize him and and sort of establish like the core of who he is and and what he wants and you know he just seems like this sort of like you know sad sort of lonely figure who's clearly got as you said marsh like anti-social tendencies but strange empathy for animal. But then when we get into this animals, but, but then when we get into the second section here, the second shot, um, and he starts confessing these misdeeds, like it, it immediately turns. And, you know, he starts like explaining all the little things he's doing. And this is well before the bombs, but like right away, he talks about like stringing up wire for guys who are riding motorcycles. And he's talking about like yeah. consciously putting it at neck height, to try mm-hmm. to basically like fucking decapitate yeah. people riding on motorcycles. And it's like, holy shit. You yeah, know? he has like, that really spooky line where he says, unfortunately, I doubt anyone was seriously injured when he finds the wire on the ground as opposed to where he left it. Yeah, he's yeah. setting traps and he's going back to see if he caught any prey. You know? Yeah. I and do he, like that he's like a sugar in the gas tank fiend, though. That's yeah. like his most early crimes are just like, these people were being loud or pissing me off or like doing something destructive to nature. So I just put sugar in all their gas tanks repeatedly. Yeah. He, he starts calling it sugaring. He just starts calling <laughs> <Yeah>. it. 
I sugar I sugared the vehicle. Like I was sugaring. There's another really strange recurring theme, or at least recurring thing he mentions about how how he has a strong psychological inhibition against breaking windows. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, he shows more concern and care about like windows than other human beings. Yeah. Uh, but again, when he's ruminating on the windows, he uh, again refers it back to like this idea that you know we're all sort of like conditioned or under mind control of some kind and you know there is again if you know they don't obviously this is not a biopic so we're not treated to the time that ted kaczynski was part of a sort of like psychological research the murray study Uh, yeah exactly and a lot of people again i don't want to get too much into the the reality here outside of the film but again a lot of people suspect that his like lifelong aversion to this boogeyman of like mind control and indoctrination comes from his explicit sort of like being a test subject i mean he does say in shot three that my motivation is personal revenge you know here's a guy that has a lot of anger and feels he's been wrong and then that's what's you know he's not just responding to things outside of his own life you know things he's read it, it there is a personal element a man who does feel like he's been wronged and then he's going after everyone else but yeah that's when he begins his his chicago odyssey <laughs> yeah the third section the third shot which now takes place at winter and so i i kind of called that section myself in my notes the winter war I'll get another little connection with Stalin. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, his first trip to Chicago is in the second shot, because that's when he doesn't want to get recognized at the merchandise mart. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's interesting, too, because, like, a lot of... I, I love this, too, Marsh. Like you said, like, he is at heart, like, a good old Midwestern boy. Oh, so, yeah. So, like, all of his news seems to just come from the Tribune and the Sun-Times. Yeah, tons of shout-outs to him scouring the Chicago papers for any mentions of his maimings or killings. Yeah, one of my favorite moments is when he says, Tribune said no panic, but Sun-Times said some were jumping up and down, screaming for the poor stewardess. And then I'm like, there you go. You got the two different, you know. Any good Chicagoan will tell you. It's like, you know, you go for the Tribune for the, the straight dope, but you go to the Sun-Times for the real gritty details, yeah. you know. <laughs> But then, yeah, on top of that, right, there's also the element of James Benning with his Midwestern drawl reading all of this, too, that makes it feel so much more authentic and emotional. I honestly, like, at times was, like, lost and forgot, you know, that Benning was a filmmaker reading this thing and it was almost just like automatic like i'm just listening to the unabomber's thoughts like plausibly with just the way he sort of sounds which again as uh, a lifelong midwesterner i find extremely comforting the way james benning talks and even though the sound recording is like not great that's another sort of like added element there is like a, a strange presence to the recording of the voice almost like it's like discreetly recorded or, or a surveillance. Just like recording on a tape recorder in his cabin or something like that. Right. It does sound like that. Yeah, that's that's a nice connection. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, I, now I like imagining that we're we're getting like a wiretap inside of the the Unibomber's <laughs> cabin and, and James Benning is in there. That's fun. I, I wouldn't put it past him to, uh, to have nice. done that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, now I got to watch it again and imagine him in there. <laughs> so that's what I was feeling. Yeah. Again, the second section 
lays it all out. He's being a bad boy. He's doing all this shit around where he lives in Montana. Anyone who's pissing him off for riding a motorcycle. Uh, he's is, sugaring is, their tanks. Yeah, he's getting their stuff destroyed. He's destroying people's vehicles and RVs. And he, this is where he lays out initially in this concealed packet, you know, the stuff where he talks about hating the technological society that deprives him and all of us of personal autonomy. But again, he, he also has this very like, my motive is revenge. I don't pretend to have any philosophical or moralistic justification. And of course he goes there where he's like, morality is a b- bourgeois construction, He right? then goes into more justification (laughs) in May 1978 I came back to the Chicago area mainly for one reason so that I could more safely attempt to murder a scientist businessman or the like I would also like to kill a communist (laughs) (laughs) which yeah Ted he's all inclusive you gotta give him that you know throughout it he had a lot of criticism for both the left and the right that's (laughs) absolutely true he certainly did and again it's like here's this educated guy in his first target um, or at least one of his first targets is a graduate student at Northwestern or just any graduate student hoping that, you know, someone will open it. But he's he's only injured. He's hospitalized. Yeah, he us. attacks like UIC and Northwestern mm-hmm. first. And again, he had, you know, a relationship to Northwestern for all the shit he wrote. You know, ultimately is the story of Ted Kaczynski just like the laid off professor who went the postal, you know, that haunts all of this stuff. And he'll, he doesn't admit it or recognize it necessarily as such, but he just keeps bombing like professors and graduate assistants like all the people from the specific milieu that he personally went through and experienced right it is funny too that thinking that he could you know he was so afraid of being recognized by just returning to the merchandise mart more than once you know another another aspect too like we've been talking about you know like his sort of like these personal targets like you're talking about that he you know sort of strikes out at (laughs) one of my favorites was when he talks about one of these people in the section that uh that he did like you know the bomb did sort of i think blow up and hurt them um he says that one of them was like training to be an astronaut and he was like i can't think of anything more ignoble than being an astronaut you know it's like it's like this figure that's so like beloved in like these modern technological societies like what a pile of bullshit that is like the most worthless job you can have an astronaut you know? you'd think ted would like love the isolation and quiet of space you can find. <laughs> yeah, you don't have not too many neighbors. Ex- not out at there. the expense of the destruction of the Earth. Of course, know? of course. So, NASA, yeah, I mean, big carbon to, footprint. Yeah, and related to that, really quickly, it is in the second shot where he's talking about you know all these issues he has with the motorcycles and all the noise in his area, and then talking about you know his trip to Chicago and his first bombings. But it's also in the second shot that we hear the first vehicle pass by in the woods after Benning has stopped reciting from the Unabomber notes and it's moments like that that remind me so much of why I love structuralist film because so much is stripped away that when something like that happens it somehow has this intense power like it carries so much like the smallest little thing that would just be background noise and anything else but I'm like here we go The, the woods have been interrupted I have heard this described to me already now for almost an hour and it's happened it just has, yeah, it has so much weight to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so much presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it does feel obscene 
It does. You know? And I think this is where, you know, again, to the prompt, like, when you talk about sympathy for the devil, like, where this film does start to sort of really play in that territory, that we kind of go into that mindset a little bit, that we are in these sort of moments of tranquility with nature, and, you know, we've heard some of his gripes and his issues, but we're also like, well, I mean... Come on, man, it can't be that bad. But then, you know, you do get into this sort of like hypnotic, almost trance-like state of just sort of like being there and being in this space and, and looking at this just beautiful landscape and then hearing the fucking roar of a truck and going, why, what the hell out mm -hmm. here, you know? And like, it does encroach upon you in a way that makes you go like, oh, I get it. You know, like, yeah, I, I felt like if I had the pleasure of seeing it in a theater, I probably would have gasped at that moment, you know? I mean, I think it's obvious that Benning sees himself in Kaczynski. They're men of the same generation, essentially. And he, instead of, you know, mailing bombs to people, James Benning picked up a camera and became a filmmaker, and he's dealt with issue you know issues of landscape and ecology and politics in his bizarre structural films and it's certainly his way of of dealing with it but i think the way the, the film like any you know sort of structural film or experimental film like this it wants to rewire your senses as a viewer just like Kaczynski also wants to sort of like rewire people's senses because there's an explicit connection that you can even make and this is towards the end of the fourth fourth shot towards the end of the movie not to jump ahead Kaczynski talks about the beauty of nature the more intimate you become with nature the more you appreciate its beauty its beauty that consists not only in sights and sounds but in an appreciation of the whole thing. I don't know how to express it. What is significant is that when you live in the woods, rather than just visiting them, the beauty becomes part of your life, rather than something you just look at from the outside. Part of the intimacy with nature that you acquire is the sharpening of the senses. Not that your hearing and eyesight become more acute, but you notice things more. In city life, you tend to be turned inward. Your environment is crowded with irrelevant sights and sounds, and you just get conditioned to block most of them out of your consciousness. In the woods, you get so that your awareness is turned outward towards your environment. Hence, you're much more conscious of what goes on around you. And that's what Benning does in his films, right? He forces you to look at things for an incredibly long amount of time and to just think about it and contemplate it and what happens from that duration and that weight of time and that potentially boredom or diversion or concentration, whatever arises from that experience, right? I think it's worth you sharing on the pod your great story about the um, 
the title is escaping me now. BNSF. Yes. Yeah. Well, friend of friend of the pod, Alex Sherman and I, several years ago, were on my back porch. We were just hanging out, and I put on BNSF, the James Benning film, which is just about the the train. It's just right. a shot of a train, essentially. Essentially, and I put it on, and the train comes roaring by, and it's this beautiful desert landscape, and we're like, oh, that was pretty sick. There's like an hour forty five left in this movie that has no cuts or whatever and then we just you know smoke a little weed we're just talking we're laughing we're like looking at this desert landscape but forgetting it's there but looking at it and then like 45 minutes later the train came roaring back and we were just fucking hooting and hollering like losing our minds (laughs) Uh, well because yeah the thing i always think about from that story is the confusion at the noise because you forgot that the source of it was the film Right? Yeah. Isn't that what happened? Well, yeah, you, you we like... heard the train like honking off screen as if it was like the train in Logan Square, Avondale, like honking out the window. Like even just we were like f- accidentally watching it or incidentally watching it. And it's very memorable viewing experience yeah. regardless. It's really beautiful. Yeah. I think Benning <laughs> would like it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an interesting kind of comparison for me when I was watching the film, thinking of like, Kiristami's Five, and I remember at some point um, talking to somebody about Five, you know, which is a film of, you know, five single long takes, and, you know, one of them you're watching a bunch of, like, ducks walk across the shore or something, and finding out later, like, actually how choreographed and contrived some of those shots were in Five, like, that he actually, like, he set control a bunch of it, yeah. Right, you know, and as a sort of, like, contrast to something that, like, Benning is trying to do, you know, which is create presence through I think the more like transient aspects the 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 aspects of like time and space that we don't conquer that we can't conquer you know but that we sort of witness and and experience and nothing against Kiristami this isn't a knock on Kiristami right right? I'm not like ah Kiristami's junk because he had (laughs) duck wranglers or whatever on his film but you know like again this idea that there are ways to experience the world where where we try to where we try to sort of take ownership of it where we try to get our hands around it you know especially in film and in filmmaking and other filmmakers and again maybe it's a philosophical point who 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 don't and here in Benning's work and you know particularly even in this film where Comparing it again to Stalin for a moment, right? We're seeing this big, huge chunk of Stalin's life, you know, compressed into three hours. Yeah, everything, you know, all this stuff from 1917 to the 1950s, you know? And here we have, you know, four unbroken long takes in real time that, that that's what we're feeling, right? In Benning's film, you know, like... Drink, folks who listen to the podcast every time I mention Deleuze and the time image, you know? But, like, again, that idea for me that I love of, like, experiencing films that make time so visible. Mm-hmm. And and everything that you beautifully expressed, Marsh, in what we experience when we allow ourselves to see time as it stands, you yeah. know? I mean, it's interesting, too, where your mind jumps and what you start seeing when time is stretched out so much. I mean, it was in, it was by the third shot where I felt like I was recognizing trees and also recognizing like faces in the trees or like a tree that looked like a wolf's head, another one that kind of looked like a bison. And then by the time we got to the fourth shot, I was finding them again, but they had looked so different because of course in the 
third shot it's winter and there's snow everywhere and then in the fourth it's summer again well then that's another brilliant aspect of the time in the film right is not just the real time of the shots but the cuts between the shots as different seasons because yeah I similarly was getting lost just sort of like looking for and recognizing the trees that were making themselves more visible or less visible based on the season and what was standing out and what was different and what was the same. And again, looking at it from a purely pictorial uh, painting perspective, I mean, it is just an endlessly analyzable kind of landscape shot, of course, from foreground to background. You've got things that are constantly shifting, fog is moving, the sun is setting or moving. I mean, again, it's slow as hell but it's extremely dynamic and then going season to season gives you an even greater contrast and and in that sense you know that that sort of passage that you were describing about you know that Kaczynski's sort of explaining you know where he's talking about nature and how to attune your senses to it right as I was like watching that and listening to it and, and experiencing the film, I was like, this is like Bedding explaining his cinema yep. and his approach. This is long take cinema right here. And, and Kaczynski, in, through Kaczynski's own words, like he's explaining like how to actually appreciate this. You know, because for, for, for a lot of people, you know, this film and this style of filmmaking, you know, we have film students that sometimes we've tried to show things like this to, and they like want to jump out the fucking window. You know, they just like reject it. They can't handle it. And it's like, there's so much reward within it. If you can just sort of like, like, I think on a certain, the way you started our discussion of the film by, by sort of talking about like the rules and like learning the rules of like how to engage with it. Like, like this isn't trying to be fucking Avengers Endgame. Like, and if you try to to compare it to that, like, of course, something like this will always seem to you like fucking miserable. But like, if you can understand the approach and what it's trying to do, like, it is just this incredibly rewarding experience that, unfortunately, like like Kaczynski's even saying with nature, like so many people are just gonna remain blind to. Like, they can't accept it like those spaces where you know he's just allowing you to sort of look at the frame and and look at what you want to in the frame not through his editing but your own choices of what you're looking at the frame like there's incredible freedom there that so many people just cannot understand Mm -hmm. that you know they want Stalin daddy to tell them like what to look at and what to (laughs) feel and what to think at every single time and here you're being presented with again like you said in this contrast the complete opposite of that, of, of a total freedom to look at what you want, to think of what you want, to experience what you want. Yeah, it was definitely, when he stopped talking the second time on the second shot, that's when it all became so clear, at least the, the act of viewing and how it worked. And I mean, that's why I like structuralist films so much, is because there are rules. They're all based on their own set of rules that you can usually discover pretty quickly with, with the films once you start watching them. And there's something to me extremely comforting about that. So the moment he stopped talking the second time, I'm like, oh great, I can sit now. I can like stop taking my notes and I can watch and I can just like let this soak in. I'm sure there's about 20 minutes left before we're gonna change seasons. And it's nice, like there's something so... It's the playful aspect of it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, because it becomes a game. Like I'm saying, where I'm seeing different animals in the trees. Like I'm just, I'm amusing myself, you know, with with what he's giving me. I'm just like kind of peeking around and looking for things. 
Sure, even when a bug flies in front of the camera, it's like a shocking (laughs) uh, moment, you know, Uh, because anything in these shots registers on that certain pitch. And while, look, I'll sing his praises uh, till the cows come home, but, you know, he is not above a little manipulation. And I did read that the fourth shot helicopter was a sound effect. Oh, oh no. For shame. I wish, I wish I didn't know, but it, it's, it's okay to know. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's he is a filmmaker after all, it right? Like, tisk, tisk. But honestly, like, that's maybe one of the only th- things in the entire film besides the amount of smoke coming from the cabin at various points in the second shot yeah. uh, that are quote-unquote manipulated. I mean, I can see why, because the fourth shot is like based so much on the pattern of the sun yes so like it would have been really hard for him to get that sunset without or with a helicopter just in general i I did find it suspiciously lucky i guess i would say yeah it's so perfect because it's like the last thing as we're sitting with again this walden-esque ode to nature from from old ted you know and we're sitting and contemplating and then you hear the chopper sort of come in on the soundtrack and it's quite effective you know within the context of the film especially because you know he has that bit earlier where he in his like confession of his misdeeds and stuff where he talks about at a certain point trying to shoot down a helicopter with his rifle. And now he said, you know, when he realized how hard it was to do, you know, he, he like wept because he couldn't (laughs) shoot down a fucking chopper with his like 22 rifle or whatever. And then like you, this, you know, in the third shot, he does talk about how these frustrations and this anger and this fear, he is interpreting it as literally killing him. Um, because yes. he talks about how this anger makes his heart beat irregularly. And he's like, if this keeps going on, if I can't accomplish my goals, like, I'm going to die. Like, this is going to kill my heart. It's a pretty, pretty dramatic way of looking at it. Well, yeah, I mean, there's another sort of humanizing or sympathetic element to, I think, the diaries and the things that are being read. That's kind of, you know, this sort of pathetic through line of the fact that, like, this guy sucks at bombing he sucks <laughs> yeah. at being a survivalist you know like i mean that's, yeah, he's hunting small game he's yeah. not doing very well no he's he's fucking you know not doing great but like he keeps talking about his failures of his bomb making and how frustrated he is and so there is yet another added element of this like failure i mean you want to talk like Talking about here's the difference between our two films' characters. Ted Kaczynski, you know, thought about nothing else but like revenge and killing, and successfully killed what three people? Yeah, you know that's that's pretty. Put you know probably all told like. 30 million in the fucking grave. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, like, like, we're just watching Chaplin movies, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, like, I mean, you know, what do you do with that? I don't know. But, like, in, in the context, again, it's just like, yeah, this guy's, you know, for how smart he is, he's such a fuck-up and such a failure that, like, 
I'm just going to do it all on my own. But like, he doesn't really do it very well, obviously. I mean, I guess he's good at sort of hiding the trail, but not necessarily achieving his aims because he's constantly bitching about this stuff. And we should mention too, I, I mentioned it in the beginning, but one of the very interesting things about the creation of this film is that shot three of the Kaczynski diaries that he's reading come from these two notebooks that were encrypted. And it has, it just so happened that James Benning's friend, who's also an artist, bought those in an auction. And James Benning, again, the connections between him and Ted are not lost on him. James Benning studied math. And James Benning decoded the notebooks himself to read them for this movie. And so shot three uh, has a new, new Unabomber material dropped, you know, in 2012. (laughs) And so again, like, you know, in just sort of glancing interviews with Benning, the spiritual connection between him and Kaczynski in terms of location and age and all that stuff, you know, is not lost on him. And he even talked in, in something I saw about how he was acquaintances with guys at Madison in college who became like eco terrorists, like leftist terrorists. And Benning had a brush with the FBI in the 1970s for his connections to alleged, you know, Again, like there is this, yeah, again, like this deep connection that also he's, as a filmmaker, just sort of articulating or trying to get out with this film. So did he build the, did he rebuild the cabins entirely on his own? Yes. He did? Yeah. Okay. He like built them with his bare hands. Wow. In the the Sierra Nevadas, they're not in, I don't think. Montana. Montana or anything. Because it is curious too, you know, it's just amusing that. The Walden cabin is no longer there, and the Unabomber cabin is also no longer there. It's in, like, the Smithsonian. It's in Washington, D.C. somewhere. That's right. They moved it. it. Yeah, it's now closed, but it was in an exhibit until, like, 2018 or 2019 or something like that. The Smithsonian is some wild shit in there. You know something else in the Smithsonian, which I've seen? They have Columbo's raincoat in the Smithsonian. Oh. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Have you guys gone on the, the, the like Unabomber page on the FBI's website? Mm, maybe. It's, it's really funny. I've done <laughs> some deep Unabomber dives through, through mm-hmm. my life. It's, it's like one of the first things that comes up when you look up Ted. And it's just, it's just funny reading the way the FBI frames it all. And they talk about our team, you know, and our team going after the Unabomber and our struggle. And Correct me and if I'm wrong. Him. This was like, wasn't it like one of the most like expensive like manhunts? Oh, yeah. Up to that point, it was the most expensive. Yeah, because they, I mean, it was Again, all random. Again, as you pointed, too, for a guy that was kind of a fuck-up at what he yeah. did, you know? Like. Just a jag-off from Evergreen Park, you know? <laughs> uh, and, well, you know, another reason I picked this is because of not just the fact that he's from around where we're from, but I do have a direct connection to the Unabomber, and that is, uh, it's a two-pronged connection. My family's hairdresser growing up uh, knew him as a, as a kid, But more pointedly, I was friends with, in middle school, this kid whose dad was an FBI agent out of the Chicago field office, and he was on 
the raid when they got him. And so, yeah, like I knew this guy, knew this guy who, who was there when it all went down. And that was, yeah, that sort of, again, something that loomed large. I mean, it was such a big news story when we were kids. Oh, yeah. And then it was like, do you know Dan's dad caught the Unabomber? And it was like <laughs> totally true. Wow. So. It is a bummer that it's like his, he was caught because his like brother turned on him. His brother read it and he's like, oh, fuck. It sounds Ted. like my bro. Yeah, I mean, it's it was like a very controversial play on their part, right? Because that's what he wanted, you know? He wanted, you know, publish the manifesto, you know? And people were like, absolutely not. And it was like, Janet Reno, I think, was part of the yeah. decision, and and the well, FBI. Bob Buccioni was going to publish it in Hustler that's or whatever. Right. Penthouse, yeah. <laughs> Penthouse, yeah. yeah that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you know, like they they made the call, like yeah, let's get it out there. I think in the sense that you know maybe somebody's going to have something yeah. here, you know. Because then it ran in like the the Washington Post, I think. Because he specifically said like if if it runs in Penthouse, I reserve the right to do one more bombing. <laughs> Because they were like, it'll run in penthouse. And he was like, all right, but then I get one more bombing. And then they were like, then the Washington Times was like, all right, we'll do it. Okay. There, well, one other thing I want to mention before I forget that is part of the whole decoding thing that part of the text that Benning decoded is uh, a, a line in which Ted Kaczynski writes encrypted FBI investigating incident. FBI suck my cock. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't think make that connection now that that was from the decoded portion. That's nice. Finally. Hell of a discovery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's I think, again, legit. you know, bringing both of the films, too, into, again, like a, a discussion, you know, bringing them together. You know, part of the experience for me with this topic and, you know, with looking at both of these films, because these are both figures that I've at various points in my life been sort of fascinated by this idea of like, were these sort of the right moves, but just in the wrong direction and with the wrong execution? Because to an extent, you know, I'm not trying to defend, you know, his actions, you know, but when you look at some of what Kaczynski's talking about, especially now. He goes after the Exxon guys. Listen, no, you don't need to like apologize for it. I think a lot of what he writes in the manifesto is like true. Like I align with it. It's just his means. Like I said, he had no sense of proportion. He had no empathy and he committed like heinous evil acts. But the guy, I mean, in his manifesto, there's so much in there that I do think rings true and there's this real anger that I understand. Can I share with you what Benning said on this topic? Oh, please. (laughs) He said, My intention is not to exploit, but rather to show how complex Kaczynski's thinking is. I believe his warnings are just. Of course, I find his methods wrong. But then again, I pay taxes, which have been used to kill lots of innocent people over the past 50 years. So I guess I'm not so innocent myself. And then he goes on to say, this whole project will keep evolving as I get a better handle on what it says politically. I want to understand solitude and relating to nature as both of these men wrote about it, Kaczynski and Thoreau. I want to know how one's senses become more attuned to what is around us. We don't practice paying attention anymore. We're bombarded with too many things, have too much to do. Being in the cabins helps me retain an attention span that allows me to look, listen, and feel deeply. When you're in the woods, everything is important. 
whether a track on the ground or a noise in the distance. You have an entirely different way of relating to your environment. I feel like that's the note to go out on with that quotation there. All right. Well, uh, Ryan, this week it was your topic. So why don't you... uh, And we gave you a couple of doozies. Yeah, we gave you some, some big ones here, you know? Yeah, you certainly did. So, what about you? What do you? What would you? What would you have picked? Or what is something uh, on this theme? Who's a devil you like to sympathize with in cinema? Well, specifically in cinema, and then in relation to cinema, you know, one film that comes to my mind. I, I jokingly was thinking, um, I haven't seen the film, but when I was mentioning the prompt to you as an example, like, oh, Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar, right? But Clint has done quite a few sympathy for the devil films and sympathy just for the the hero, right? You know, you've got Richard Jewell. Like, I would never call Richard Jewell a devil. You better not. How dare I ever even think (laughs) it. Just watch your fucking mouth. But he does have a really incredible film called White Hunter Black Heart, which is essentially his sympathy for the devil portrait of John Huston as he was making The African Queen. And it's a thorny film. It's a film that engages both with the history of John Huston and also with Clint's own perception of himself as an American filmmaker artist. And yeah, I mean, I think it's one of Clint's most incredible films. It's one of the great naughty American movies as well. Just, you know, this guy stomping around Africa being an asshole. You yeah, know? absolutely. It Packs was a, a film punch. that like, really troubled me at the time when I saw it to the point where I almost thought it was really bad and then it just like sat with me um and it's a film I like think about quite a lot um so yeah well it was my turn this week and I was um yeah what a week I mean this was a, <laughs> this is an incredible pairing so now hopefully we can return the favor to you Marsh with uh, with whatever you've got picked for next week what do you got to be honest I thought about you know, trying to really flip the script and maybe do something lighthearted. But then I decided, nah, fuck it. So, you know, sort of <laughs> continuing on the train here, we started with Stemple Pass. Of course, the IPCC-UN report about the climate came out this week. Oh, no. And so I was thinking that our topic should be it's the end of the world as we know it. And specifically, of course, I think that means films about Earth be, be just being destroyed or ending or something in something in that ballpark. I'm sure you guys can come up with something, uh, something good or, or interesting or something to console the despair uh, in it's our hearts. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. <laughs> I'm so glad. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. As for motivation, I hate the technological society because it deprives me of personal autonomy. It may be in some sense inevitable, but it is so only because of the way people behave. Consequently, I hate people for the technological society and its associated phenomenon, from motorcycles to computers to psychological controls. Almost anyone who holds steady employment is contributing his part. Of course, people I hate most are those who consciously and willfully promote the technological society, such as scientists, businessmen, and politicians. 
I emphasize that my motivation 